0: Episode of Are You Kidding Me? My name is Naomi Schaefer Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And,
0: and today we are excited to have joining us Howard Husak. He is actually one of our colleagues at AEI. He's an adjunct scholar in domestic policy studies at AEI, and he focuses here on local government, civil society, and urban housing policy.
1: Yeah, and Howard, so it's really great to see you. And we'd really love to talk to you about a column that you recently did in the City Journal about the string of laws uh, that government uh, is passing that really undermine this idea of bourgeoisie virtues. So before we get into the first law, which is what's happening in New York State, what are bourgeoisie virtues?
2: Well, first of all, thanks so much, Naomi and Ian, for including me in this podcast the bourgeois virtues are time-tested self-investments, I think is one way to think about them. Investments in putting off for pleasures for tomorrow, self-abnegation, increasing one's own human capital through education, but there are a lot of self-denial is involved in, in bourgeois virtues. Putting off for tomorrow the pleasures of today so that you can you can be a better person in the long run it's a long run focus rather than a short run focus but it also includes avoiding the seven deadly sins envy greed all of those and having a strong work ethic all of that involves a certain degree of self-abnegation and yep. self-sacrifice for long run long run thinking
1: yep So delayed gratification might be the way I'd say it in my school. So, but now here, Governor Cuomo has just come along and the legislature has passed a law and Governor Cuomo, talking about immediate gratification, uh, a new marijuana law could bring in $350 million annually in new tax revenues. But you write in your column, uh, though, the one issue is that we are witnessing the states not just accepting drug use but relying on its revenues and thus encouraging it. Government is now a co-conspirator in vice," end quote. So what's the, what's the unintended consequence of what seems like a boon in money
2: coming into the district? My concern as, as, a, as a conservative, I think, has always been with the, the prospects of poorer people, I think our society has to always be focused on that. And my great concern here, and it involves uh, the encouragement of drug use, complicity in drug use, gambling through lotteries, all of these things in effect, preach a message of short-term pleasure and moreover, create a, a reliance on the part of state government, on people doing things that are harmful to themselves, that, that we understood not that long ago were vices to be avoided. And here we have government not only legalizing them, that's a long discussion, should dr- drugs be decriminalized, but to actively be complicit in encouraging them saying, this is a great thing, we'll get tax money. Lottery money will go for education. All of these and the advertising that we're likely to see, which yeah. will encourage the idea of getting high quick, getting rich quick, these are, these are harmful messages. And to have the state not just tolerate these things, not just acquiesce, but to be complicit in their use and reliant on tax revenues from them, very dispiriting.
0: It's interesting, Howard. I was talking to Ian before about how this is what happened uh, in a lot of Indian reservations. I I wrote a book about this a few years ago. And, you know, everybody knows about casinos and Indian reservations, but not a lot of people kind of understand why casinos ended up on Indian reservations, which is they had this sort of legal loophole in order to have legal gambling in their territories. And they encouraged all these tourists to come there and gamble. And of course, that ended up being a tax for many of them on their own people. That was one of the few things you could do on an Indian reservation. And similarly, they were selling cigarettes tax-free for a long time. It used to be that they were just supposed to sell them to their own residents, but it was very hard to check that. And so people would go to Indian reservations. And these are the things that formed their economy, selling cigarettes, selling liquor, gambling, all these things that that middle-class people don't want in their neighborhoods, suddenly these, these areas became kind of a, a central tourist location for these kind of industries. And I wonder if you you could see that happening in some of the, the lower income areas now that we're talking about that are going to take advantage of these laws.
2: That's a great point. And I'll tell you another place that happened was in the South African townships before uh, the end of apartheid. So KwaZulu, was famous for Sun City, right over the border from a white area, you would cross into Sun City, which was gambling and vice and all of it. So those were the ultimate reservations and we've seen it before. I do worry, I, I just walked down Madison Avenue, in New York City the other day, there's a lot of empty storefronts, but you know what's coming in? Marijuana shops are starting to advertise that they're going to be opening. And we can expect this we even have, you know, Black and Hispanic leaders saying our people should get a cut of this. We should encourage our young people who have experience in the drug trade, mm. Mm. right? To get, uh, to uh, get well. a share. Are you
0: kidding uh, me? Right,
2: exactly. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally, the
1: reason we name this podcast, are you kidding me? Is thinking like that, you know? I mean, uh, uh, Howard, there's actually a loophole in the New York state law that municipalities, can opt out, right? So what's going to be the
2: real out consequence of that? Yeah, where the higher income communities will opt out. I mean, there was a history of this even with in the pre-prohibition period. There were dry towns and wet towns. We're going to have a new version of dry towns and wet towns. And it was always the, the upper income towns that were dry and there would be a place on the border that was wet and you went and bought liquor we're going to replicate that weird history and just as you have you know and i by the way i could add the sex trade to this this is coming too it, it may be the worst of all because there is a bill in the new york state legislature to legalize prostitution aka sex work but getting back to marijuana we're going to see in the same neighborhoods where the drug trade occurs now we're going to see low cost storefronts pop up, right? Because those neighborhoods don't have the advantage of being small independent jurisdictions where they can vote not to allow these kinds of uses. New York City, large cities overall will legalize this and then it'll be like one-off fights over having a liquor license or too many liquor licenses but there's gonna be legal drug trade in lower income neighborhoods. And then we're having these leaders encourage people to think of themselves as drug entrepreneurs, really.
0: Yeah, and I was I was actually thinking about your point about how the government then has a stake in the success of these businesses too. You saw a little bit of this a number of years ago with the settlements over tobacco, where suddenly states were getting millions and millions of dollars from tobacco companies, and then they had a stake in the survival of those companies. You thought the whole point was sort of driving these companies out of business because cigarettes weren't good for you. But once the government sort of then sees the revenue that can come from these anti-bourgeois industries or these vice industries, then they suddenly have a stake in their continued survival. And it's interesting sort of the perverse incentives that are being created here in the same way, just as we're watching.
2: Right, by the way, that could happen with a carbon tax. I'm I'm kind of agnostic on a carbon tax, but if we have a carbon tax, we're all gonna be tied to the fossil fuel industry in a similar way. Yeah. If there's nothing to tax, if we get to net zero, <laughs> what are we tax? Yeah. <laughs> right. And
0: if there's no marijuana to tax, then, you know, people are going to be missing that, that money. So that's going to be, that is definitely going to be an issue. So how,
1: yeah. why then do you think it is that legislators do this? I mean, Andrew Cuomo is promoting, it's $350 million in tax revenue. And for
0: years, Cuomo was against legalization. I mean, <laughs> this stalled in the New York legislature for, for years now.
1: Right. So if we know the likely consequences of these kinds of interventions, we're putting the press release in $350 million. Why do legislators continue to do this? Is it that they don't know the unintended consequences, or they're just willing to play the, you know, roll the dice with the lives
2: of people who are likely going to be hurt by this? I don't know the psychology of these legislators. They get swept up in the tsunamis of public opinion, and to me, it's mystifying why the marijuana legalization tsunami has been so unquestioned. You know, I, I think of legislators as followers, not leaders. Mm. And, and they're, most of the time, unfortunately. And, and they're following this trend that began, I remember when it began, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Normal, started in the 60s, of course. And the idea that drug use was a choice, and those were all upper middle class kids like me at that time who were for it. And now, of course, they have their kids avoid it, you know? So I think the legislators are just followers for one, but two, they are staring, especially in the blue states, at these structural budget deficits caused by the fact that, I mean, for instance, in Illinois, There are now, more in Chicago, there are more retired workers than there are active workers. And so you're facing an ongoing structural deficit and you're desperate to plug the hole in any way you can. And you see it through that narrow prism, I think. So,
1: I mean, something you've written about is, and because maybe our whole orientation is wrong, right? Like, All of these are looking for government interventions to solve or address these issues. And you wrote, you know, civil society organizations like Boy Scouts and 4-H placed more value on formative measures as opposed to what seems to be happening today, which is government enforced emphasis on reformative measures. Talk about that, because I think that's an important distinction for how we're even looking at government's role in the first place.
2: Well, thank you for bringing that up. I wrote a book in 2019 called Who Killed Civil Society? the rise of big government and the decline of bourgeois norms. And so this conversation and my article in City Journal are elaborations on that. And and the the book tells the history of the rise of formative value organizations, the Children's Aid Society of New York, the Boy Scouts, which unfortunately has had a rough go lately with its its child abuse problems, but settlement houses uh, in New York and other cities, And by the way, there were African-American settlement houses, even in the Deep South. And they all emphasized uh, formative values. And then over time, which are the bourgeois values? Integrity, honesty, deferred gratification. And then over time, government stepped in to help people resolve problems that they had. Right. So beginning, especially in the 60s, you had president's commissions on juvenile delinquency, on teen pregnancy, on substance abuse. And the idea was if people had problems, we should have clinical interventions to reform them. The problem with that is it sends the message that government can fix you and that you can be fixed. And there's, we, we've created instead of this formative civil society, what I would call a social service state, which involves hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to nonprofit groups. So much of local government, especially in New York City, is part of this social service state. And it's so much less effective than avoiding drug use in the first place, avoiding teen pregnancy in the first place, sticking to those proven values, defer marriage, defer childbearing, get an education, get a job, any kind of job. So governments repost to civil society is, well, well, don't worry about those formative stuff. We have interveners, clinicians, social workers, they can fix you up, doc. And that's been a big problem.
0: There's a lot of it's interesting. I think it's much easier, of course, to teach deferred gratification to children than it is to teach it to adults. I mean, because you have sort of a parent there who's saying, uh, yes, you have to go to bed on time. No, you cannot have another candy bar. No, you shouldn't spend your allowance all in one place. Yes, you're going to have to do chores in order to get X, Y, or Z. But once you sort of reach adulthood, you know, there's no one sort of acting as the gatekeeper and ensuring that you really are trained. In the bourgeois values. And so it's it's interesting that we're sort of bringing these vice industries into these communities and your children are watching i mean that's the thing they're seeing what's going on they see the adults around them not deferring gratification and and this is how they're being raised and that's how you get another generation of people who are unable to defer gratification and who do not adopt those bourgeois values and i mean that is those are the the unintended consequences too is who is watching all this
2: yeah there's a lot there in what you just said naomi Charles Loring Brace, who started the, juvenile AIDS, uh, the uh, Children's Aid Society in New York in the 1850s, he was famous for the Newsboys' Lodging House, which became featured in the Broadway show Newsies. He started off going to the Rikers Island equivalent, the city prison of the era, and he, he gave up. He said, I, I can't fix these guys. I've got to start with kids. So that's one kind of dispiriting point. I, I wouldn't say we should give up on everybody. It is harder, there's no doubt about it. But number two, as parents, you know, and in my case, as a grandparent, now we have to tell our children to discount so much of what government and what norms are telling them.
0: Hmm.
2: You know, it used to be we had a larger society that reinforced positive values, constructive values. And now I have to say, okay, we, we know that it's legal to use drugs, but don't do it. We know it's legal to buy lottery tickets, but yeah. don't do it. That's a hard row for a parent or a school teacher. Yeah.
1: yeah. And with the reduction in religiosity as well. We're not, we don't have that that force. So then, Howard, who where should this be? Where is it coming from right now? What's the hopeful institution that you're seeing right now that is a reinforcer of these virtues?
2: Well, this will play to your strength, Headmaster Rowe, but I certainly see. <laughs> charter schools uh, the the best charter schools as being good news when you model such virtues as look somebody in the eye when you talk to them speak up dress well stand up straight have good manners good manners that sounds so minor it's really important you know the whole japanese society which is a relatively effective social structure they're not having enough kids, but that's a whole other problem, you know, uh, is based on good manners. Yep. And so I, I see charter schools as, as a hopeful sign. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your charter schools, of Jeff Canada's charter school in the Harlem Children's Zone. Jeff yep. Canada said, I'm not letting these rap stars come in tour my school, even though they want to give me a lot of money. Now, that's a brave decision. Yeah. You would make the same decision.
1: By the way, that is a brave decision. It's the right one. But there's a lot of social pressure to do things like that because of in the moment. And you'll be happy to know, Howard, the new network of international block grade high schools we're launching will be grounded in the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance,
2: and wisdom. And tell us the name of that network again.
1: Oh, well... Okay, so I was asked for the plug, so I can't. So this is a Vertex (laughs) Partnership Academies. (laughs) It's launching in the Bronx in 2022 for exactly the reasons that you're talking about, Howard.
2: Temperance, what a good word, you know. It tends to be satirized, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. They were not wrong. They were not wrong. Temperance is a good thing. And think about temperance in a broad sense. You temper your expectations. Temper even your expectations. Like, I'm sorry, young man, you're not going to be an NBA star. Temper your expectations. (laughs) Well, it also is is, to
1: your point, it's about self restraint. It's it's that moment when you have to make a decision. Because ultimately, what we're trying to do is build young people who have the capacity to make good decisions. And sometimes a good decision is to do absolutely nothing and to not engage and as you talked about, immediate gratification kinds of activities.
0: Well, the other area of the population that I think that you're seeing these virtues from still are, of course, immigrants, because you have to have engaged in this kind of self-abnegation and future planning in order to get here in the first place. And then, you know, you hope that those virtues are passed on to at least the first generation, if not afterwards. And, And also you have that That often that immigrant community of people who are trying to reinforce those values too, which a lot of families don't have and are kind of missing that support structure that you emphasize so much, Howard.
2: Yeah, I I think there there are. We tend to think what are the big institutions and the big answers to this problem. We've been conditioned, I think, by wars on poverty and other ideas that there must be something big. I think we need a thousand small local organizations that are doing these kinds of things. And there are many people who are doing them, you know, and and we have to become aware of them. We have to support them with our own local charitable dollars. We have to seek them out. And we have to, I think, put aside the idea that we can scale up grand new ideas that are gonna transform society. That's gotten us in trouble. Yeah.
0: And prevent government from undermining all those efforts too.
2: That
1: would be nice. Let me me just ask you uh, on that point, you know, there was an era where government's message was just say no, right? So there was at one time an effort. Could that even, could, could that even work? One could argue it didn't work before, but could that even work today?
2: Well, you know, by the way, alcohol use declined significantly during prohibition. I mean, we're not supposed to say that it was just silly and there were gangsters, but Just say no, drug use was down for a while. Nancy Reagan, of course, that was not really an official government message. It was her personal message, like Lady Bird Johnson wanted to have keep America beautiful. And she was mocked for it. She was brutally mocked. You know, closer to home here at AEI, Robert Doerr, the president of AEI, when he was in, in New York City as the health and human resources commissioner began a advertising campaign to discourage teenage pregnancy. Yeah, a success. And he, he had hard. to take a lot of incoming fire for that. So that's why I actually believe it's it's probably, we shouldn't look to government to send those messages because we're going to have to create our own norms and reinforce them. There, it, it, If we want government to do it, it's going to be a lot of crossfire. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Howard, for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley.
1: And I'm Ian Rowe.
0: And you can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, please send us suggestions for future guests. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Howard, that's great stuff. Thank you very much. We have
2: to stop. I'm having so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.